Lord, we confess that we are fallen sinners who live in a fallen world. We feel it in our aging, aching bones. We feel it in our sinful desires and our cravings. We see it in the headlines every day. We echo the Lord's prayer today, deliver us from evil. And we also pray, give us this day our daily bread. Feed us from your word today. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. As human beings, we cannot help but ask ourselves the big questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? What is my purpose in life? What is the meaning of life? Well, as we grow older and experience more of the world, we continue along this line of questioning. Why is the world the way it is? Why is there death and disease? Why are there natural disasters and tragic accidents? Why do people do such cruel and heartless things to each other? Why is there murder and rape and child abuse and crime? and war? Why is there poverty and hunger? Why are other people so messed up? And if we're truly honest with ourselves, we should ask, why am I so messed up? Why do I have a desire for goodness, but then I so often fall short? Why do I fail to live up to my own standards, let alone the standards of others? Why do I sometimes feel so out of place in this world? Why does nothing seem to truly satisfy me or make me happy? Who can fix me, and where can I find ultimate satisfaction? Today we will learn from God's holy word, the Bible, why the world is so messed up, why we are less than perfect, and why we can't seem to find ultimate satisfaction in this world. We will also learn why and how we can have hope for a better life and a better world. Today, we are continuing our series through Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And I'd encourage you to turn to the third chapter of Genesis so you can follow along as I read aloud portions of Scripture. So please turn to Genesis chapter 3 if you have a Bible there or you brought your tablet or your favorite Bible app. As we've seen thus far, Genesis is full of beginnings and origins, and it contains foundational truths for the rest of the Bible and for the Christian faith. It is ultimately all about God, but one of the themes we see throughout this book is God's undeserved kindness to the undeserving. That's why we're calling this sermon series Foundations of Grace. In our first look at Genesis, we examined the structure of the book. It's made up of two halves. The first half provides an overview of human history, leading up to the second half, which focuses on a particular family, the family of promise. We also learned that Genesis is made up of an introduction plus 10 toledots. That's a Hebrew word that means either accounts or histories or generations. Some toledots are longer than others, and each provides a history that springs forth from the person or object named in the toledot. So in our second look at Genesis, the second sermon in this series, we examined the first two chapters, which are the introduction for the book and also the first part of the first toledot, the toledot of the heavens and the earth, which we learned is a merism. It means the, the toledot of the universe. 
Today we will finish the Toledot of the heavens and the earth and complete the entire book of the Toledot of Adam. Last time, we saw the glorious character of God and attributes of God displayed in his creation, especially the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman, who are both created in the image of God and have responsibilities to reflect his glory to the rest of creation. And in the last verse of chapter 2, we saw that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. Notice that Genesis 2 verse 25 says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Very soon in today's passage, we will see the man and the woman naked and ashamed. We will see what caused them to go from naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed, and what that transformation has to tell us about why the world is the way it is. There are so many foundational truths in the book of Genesis, one of which is the truth that God in his mercy shows undeserved kindness to the undeserving, which is what the Bible calls grace. In this book and in this text, we clearly see the foundations of grace. In today's passage, we will see why we need grace and where it comes from. So today's sermon outline reflects today's outline. Today we are going to examine sin, its effects, and God's grace. Today's outline reflects the gold standard of sermon outlines, the sermon outline format that Moses first brought down from Mount Sinai. Three points and a poem. No, just kidding. That that outline is not inspired. Uh, No outline format is inspired. But that just happens to be how our outline is structured today. So today we will look at, one, what sin is, two, what sin brings, and three, what God brings. What sin is, what sin brings, and what God brings. We're going to dissect the concept of sin so that we fully understand it, can diagnose it, and guard against it. And we'll look at some of the things that sin brings, its results, its effects, And then we will see what God brings to the equation of our sin and its results. Spoiler alert, he brings grace. First, let's see what sin is. Let's dissect sin and study its anatomy. We begin with an unlikely creature, a snake. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The word translated here, crafty, doesn't necessarily have the negative connotation that it does in English. It can mean shrewd or wise, and it can be either positive, like many of its mentions in the book of Proverbs, or negative, just depending on the context. So we know from the rest of the passage and from the rest of Scripture, especially the book of Revelation, that this serpent is no ordinary snake. Satan, the fallen angel who opposes God, has either possessed a snake or has taken on the form of a snake. And as we continue reading in verse 1, we'll see his agenda. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman uh, shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Satan clearly lives up to his crafty reputation. He doesn't start out with a full frontal assault on God's word. He just starts by sowing doubt. Did God really say that is how he begins? It's a question that false teachers and cult leaders and sinners looking for an excuse uh, to sin have asked ever since. Whenever we toy with temptation, we do the same thing. Did God really say Notice that the woman didn't remember God's command clearly or correctly. She adds to God's command by saying, neither shall you touch it, which God had not actually said. This either reflects the woman's legalistic tendency to add uh, to God's commands, or it's the fact that her husband did not fully transmit God's command to her, or simply her carelessness with God's word. Regardless, her lack of proficiency with God's word invites a more direct attack by Satan. Satan then flatly contradicts what God had said and then tempts her with all the things she is supposedly missing out on by not eating from the forbidden tree. Notice that Satan offers the woman godlike forbidden knowledge. So many of the cults today claim to offer a special hidden knowledge not found in God's word. And many false religions and worldviews claim that you can become godlike through religious or spiritual effort. Well, where is the man in all of this? Apparently, he's right there by the woman the whole time. Not only did he hear God's command, he apparently was present for his wife's conversation with the serpent. And when offered the forbidden fruit, he ate it. The Bible indicates that the woman was deceived, but that the man sinned willfully. Notice the pattern here in these rapid-fire verbs. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. Saw, took, ate, gave, he ate. Saw, took, ate. Or more generally, saw, took, sinned. We will see this pattern of sin repeat in this chapter, uh, in this section of Scripture, and in the rest of the Bible. In chapter 6, certain people will see that certain women were attractive and will take any their hearts desired. And remember Kyle's sermon series through 2 Samuel? In chapter 11, David saw a beautiful woman. He took her and he lay with her. He committed adultery with her. Saw, took, lay. You can see this pattern elsewhere in Scripture. Also notice what the woman saw. The general categories of temptation she experienced. The woman was drawn by pleasure. She saw that the tree was good for food. She was drawn by appearance. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And she was drawn by prideful ambition. She saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. This sounds a lot to me like 1 John 2, 15-17, where John warns against loving the evil world system. There he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Or as the list reads in the the King James Version, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we've dissected temptation to sin, but what is sin? I have a very simple definition for us. Sin is disobeying God's command. God says to do A, but for whatever reason, we do B. God forbids us to do X, but for whatever reason, we do it anyway. God says not to worship anyone or anything in his place. God says not to lie, steal, or cheat. God tells us to reserve sexual activity for marriage. God says not to lust or covet or be discontent. God commands us to love him, serve him, and serve others and share the gospel. But we do something else. We disobey. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from one tree only. And what do they do? They eat from it anyway. 1 John 3, 4 says in the King James Version, sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is disobedience to God, plain and simple. Sin is also living independently of God and his law. Our ESV Bibles translate John 3, 4 as sin is lawlessness, moral anarchy, or as the book of Judges would put it, each man did that which was right in his own eyes. See, you either reject God or you obey him. There really is no neutrality with God. But sin is more than just breaking rules. You see, sin is more fundamentally doubting God's goodness. Satan didn't just tempt the woman with pleasure, appearance, and pride. He got her to doubt God's goodness. He played on her hashtag FOMO, her fear of missing out. He was strolling through her Instagram and tried to get her to fear what she was missing out on. Satan convinces her that God is holding out on her, depriving her of something good. When we disobey God, we are doubting his goodness. We say to ourselves, God is not giving us the pleasure we crave. God is not giving us the beautiful things that we want to collect or experience. God is not giving us the hidden knowledge we desire or letting us achieve the prideful goals that we've set up for ourselves. We think that the all-good God is withholding something good from us. But it's a lie. It always has been. It has always been a lie that God is not entirely good. So now we know what sin is. It is disobeying God's commands and doubting God's goodness. Now we need to consider the effects of sin. What sin brings? What does sin bring to this equation? Well, as we'll see in the rest of the passage today, sin brings many things. Let's begin in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What we see from this passage is that sin brings shame. Shame is the natural response of sinners when their sin is exposed. 
Once man and woman disobey, their eyes are indeed opened. But what great insight do they now have? That they are naked. They immediately become ashamed of their exposure and pathetically try to make coverings for themselves out of leaves. Rather than getting godlike knowledge, they simply have gone from naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. They now have a knowledge of evil, but only through experience. They know evil by committing evil. Their consciences now convict them of their sin. And what can expose the presence of sin more than the presence of a holy God? There is some scholarly debate about what the sound of the Lord is here. It could be the voice of God, or the sound of God approaching or pacing in the garden, or of the breeze blowing at the normal time for God's fellowship with man, or of the east wind of God's divine judgment. Either way, the approach of a holy God caused fear and shame to sinful human beings. Our uh, postmodern Western culture today doesn't like the concept of shame very much. Our culture tells us to feel good about ourselves no matter what, to express our identities, to take pride in what grieves the heart of God. According to the Bible, shame is a natural and appropriate response to realizing our sinfulness. And who are we to argue with God? But also notice how sin leads to blame shifting. God asks probing questions, not because he lacks any knowledge, but because he is graciously giving them an opportunity to come clean and confess their sin. But rather than forthrightly confess their own sin, they each seek to blame somebody else. You've heard of shake and bake? Well, here we have lots of shame and blame. The man blames the woman, and the woman blames the serpent. But you know what? You can't blame anyone else for your sin. We are all responsible for the sins we commit. Thanks to Adam, we do have a sin nature. Therefore, it's not that we are sinners primarily because we sin, but rather we sin because we're sinners. What we need is a second Adam to deliver us from sin. And rather than blame shifting or explaining away or suppressing our shame, we must seek God's remedy for shame. We must flee in faith to the one who experienced shame in the place of the shameful, even though he had done nothing to deserve shame, in order to save us from sin and shame. Well, not only do we experience shame as the result of sin, but our sin brings consequences. In this case, a curse. Sin brings a curse. One commentator I read defined the curse as Banishment from the place of blessing. Sin brings a curse, or sin brings consequences. As the old preachers used to say, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. Because God is just, he must justly punish. In verses 14 through 19, the great judge of the universe hands down his sentence on the offenders involved. We begin with the serpent in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Actual physical snakes are now made to live and move in a humiliating and lowly manner to symbolize 
the current shame and the future humiliation that belong to Satan. Also, enmity or violent hatred is promised between Satan and the whole human race. This is no mere promise of a fear of snakes. Next, God passes sentence on the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. God promises pain in childbirth, and also likely emotional agony in raising children. My wife will soon get to experience this, the effects of this curse up close and personal soon uh, when she brings our daughter into the world. So, sorry, babe. As for the desire mentioned here, there's, uh, there are genuinely two interpretations of what this desire means. A, the woman will idolize her husband, or B, she will undermine her husband's authority in the home. And while it's true that we can make an idol of any good thing, especially another person, it seems clear that this is promising conflict within the marital relationship. It's important to understand that the biblical concept of male leadership in the home is not a result of the fall. Rather, Paul in Ephesians grounds male headship in the creation order, which happened before the fall. However, because of sin, men are tempted to either abuse or neglect their leadership role. The male tendencies of either passivity or abusive domination come from the fall. Finally, God passes sentence on the man, beginning in verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you you shall return. There's a powerful play on words here. The ground, Adam, is cursed so that the man, Adam, will be condemned to get his food only through difficult toil until he dies, decomposes into dust, and returns to the ground, Adam, from which he was made. A few things to note. First, not only are human beings cursed, but the ground itself is as well. The earth and the entire universe experience the the effects of human sin. Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is longing to be remade in the new heavens and the new earth uh, that we read about in the book of Revelation. Creation still brings glory to God, but it eagerly awaits recreation. Second, notice that work is not an effect of the curse. Toil and futility and difficulty, which we often experience in work, is. God gave human beings meaningful work in the garden before the fall. And even in a fallen world, we can and should bring glory to God through any ethical job or career or vocation. The serpent, the woman, the man, and the universe each experience a curse as the just penalty for sin. And one of the effects of the curse is conflict in marriage. But not only does sin mar the marriage relationship, it affects our relationship with our very creator. Not only does sin bring shame and a curse, but sin brings alienation from God. 
Remember that our first parents hid themselves in shame from the approach of a holy God? Now God makes that alienation, that broken relationship official by expelling them from his presence, from his special place, from the Garden of Eden. Let's continue reading in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore... The Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The man and the woman were originally meant to serve as priests before the Lord in the garden. When they are expelled from God's sanctuary, they are replaced by mighty and fearsome angels called cherubim. So these are not the chubby babies with wings from popular myth, okay? I know we have Valentine's Day coming up, and those are not biblical cherubs. I'm not saying it's wrong to give your wife a card with, with the mythological cherubs on it, but that, those aren't what the cherubs we're talking about here. These are mighty warrior beings who cause terror by their very presence. When people meet cherubim, they fall on their faces and beg not to be killed. This is not the last time we'll see cherubim either. They appear in the artwork of the tabernacle and the temple, guarding the most holy place, the holy of holies. Notice that the man and the woman are sent east of Eden. As we will see in the judgment of Cain and in the future captivity of the nation of Israel, to be sent east is to be punished for sin and to be banished from the presence of God. Our sin separates us from a holy God. And it will take extraordinary provision by God and extraordinary sacrifice to restore that broken relationship. Sin separates us, uh, also separates us from those created in God's image, other people. So we see that sin brings alienation from our fellow man. For the sake of time, we will not read all of chapter 4, although I encourage you to read it uh, and study it at another time. But chapter 4 tells the famous story of Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain, the firstborn, raises crops. Abel raises livestock. Cain gives an offering to God from his crops, Abel from his flocks. God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's. This causes Cain to react with anger and jealousy. And we don't actually know for sure if God disapproved of Cain's outward actions. God is not in favor of cattle raisers, ranchers over crop farmers, for instance. Grain offerings were an acceptable offering in the later sacrificial system, although it does seem that Abel offered his very best. But what we do know from the book of Hebrews is that Abel offered his sacrifice in faith, and Cain did not. Now, it's not likely that Cain doubted the existence of God, but he definitely doubted the goodness of God. So Cain is either an example of outright rebellion, he's only grudgingly giving God a sacrifice, or he's an example of the first man-made false religion. He's thinking that he can manipulate God through religious ritual or through spiritual practices. Either way, as is often the case, those rejected by God vent their anger on those accepted by God. Cain kills his brother Abel, and Abel's blood cries out for justice from the ground. Not only is this the first murder, it's the first fratricide, literally brother killing. 
Sin has caused an utter breakdown in normal human relationships. Just like his sinful parents, Cain receives a curse from God. God sends him further east of Eden, further from the presence of God, and he is condemned to wander, uh, which means further alienation from his fellow man. And rather than show any remorse for the wickedness of what he did, Cain's only concern seems to be the severity of his punishment, not the severity of his crime. He seems to show a counterfeit repentance. Well, after Cain kills his brother and is cursed, he goes on to produce offspring. And the rest of chapter 4 contains Cain's family tree, his genealogy. This eight-generation genealogy in chapter 4 will contrast with the ten-generation genealogy in chapter 5. In each, there's only one member who speaks, who leaves recorded words. I've marked both in italics in my chart here. Both speakers are named Lamech. In each genealogy, the seventh person from Adam, marked here in bold, are important contrasts in moral character. In Cain's line, the only person who, uh, whose speech is recorded is Lamech. He uh, violates God's plan for marriage by having two wives, and then in verses 23 and 24, he crafts a poem celebrating his distorted marriage and boasting of having taken revenge by killing someone who had only wounded him. So this was not uh, killing in self-defense, but it was an act of lethal revenge for a prior insult. Interestingly enough, the line of Cain build uh, the first cities, they come up with new inventions, they advance culture, they advance culture through music and craftsmanship. It just goes to show you that, that human progress in technology and culture does not necessarily mean that we are progressing morally. Skill and talent are not the same thing as righteousness. Chapter full, chapter four is full of murder, revenge, and dysfunctional marriage. Because of sin, human relationships are broken, but most ser- the most serious consequence of our sin is our greatest terror, death. You see, sin brings death. In verse 19 of chapter 3, the curse on the man, God promises that because of sin, Adam would return to the dust from which he was made. Well, in chapter 5, we see the, that promise fulfilled. Verse 1 starts with a a heading, this is the book of the Toledot of Adam, or this is the book of the generations of Adam, or this is the account that begins with Adam and ends with Noah. Chapter 5 continues with, with a brief rehearsal of the creation account, God creating man and woman in his image, blessing them and naming them, followed by a genealogy that has a very structured pattern, and here is that pattern. When A had lived X years, he fathered B. A lived after he fathered B Y years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of A were Z years, and he died. Notice the repetitive drumbeat of this chapter, and he died. Eight times we read, and he died. Death is the natural consequence of sin. James 1, 14 and 15 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.22 tells us, In Adam 
all die. He also summarizes uh, Genesis chapter 5 when he says in Romans 5.14, death reigned from Adam. The first Adam, through his sin, brought us death. As we'll soon see, what we need is a second Adam, a better Adam, who can bring us life. But not only does sin bring death, but sin brings more sin. In the first four verses of chapter 6, we see what I call the sin multiplier effect. As human beings multiply in the earth, sin multiplies in the earth. Genesis 6, 1 through 4 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Well, let's tackle the thorny interpretive issues first. First, there are two common interpretations for the daughters of man. They either refer to human females generally or to women in the ungodly line of Cain. And there are three main interpretations of the sons of God, who they might be. First, some have suggested that they are fallen angels, demons. In some passages of Scripture, the members of the heavenly council of God, angels, are referred to as the sons of God. Of course, it would seem odd to use this term for fallen angels, and it's unclear that angels, fallen or unfallen, have these kinds of desires other than demons having a desire to spite God. And it seems unlikely to me anyway that demons would have the creative power to produce human reproductive cells without God's permission. But you know, if you're inclined to the more sci-fi fantasy uh, side of things, you probably like this interpretation. And honestly, there's a great textual support for it. Second, the sons of God could refer to powerful human rulers who take whatever they want, including women, with impunity. There are instances of human authorities being referred to as gods, with a lowercase g, in the Bible. Third, the sons of God could refer to the men uh, in the otherwise ungodly, excuse me, the, the, the sons of God could refer to the otherwise godly men in the line of Seth who gave into lustful temptation and married ungodly women. Intermarriage with non-believers was a frequent temptation to God's people in the rest of the Bible. And both the Old and the New Testaments for, prohibit marriages with unbelievers. One commentator I read combined the first two options. He believed that the sons of God were demon-influenced or demon-possessed rulers. Any of these interpretations provide powerful warnings for us today. First, we should avoid all contact with the spirit world whether through the occult, through New Age philosophies and practices, uh, or through an obsession with the paranormal activity. Second, even powerful sinners who seem to have it all in this life cannot escape the judgment to come, the judgment that they deserve. And third, even otherwise godly men and women must always be on guard against temptation. The Nephilim mentioned here They were the celebrities of the ancient world. They were powerful men who had made a name for themselves in the history books. They might have gained the world, but they lost their own souls. 
Also, they weren't necessarily giants. Just because the children of Israel uh, compared the giant warriors in the land of Canaan back to the Nephilim doesn't necessarily mean that the original Nephilim were giants, although it's entirely possible. Finally, the 120 years could mean that there were about 120 years from that moment until the great flood, or it could mean that human beings, with notable exceptions, would rarely, rarely live beyond the age of 120. What we do know is that human beings are getting worse. This is like Romans 1 in story form. People who didn't like to keep God in mind are given over by God to fulfill their sinful lusts and experience the just consequences for their sin. Sin is spreading. Sin is abounding. And because God is just, we see finally that sin brings judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5-7, through seven, God rightly evaluates, judges, human sinfulness, and then pronounces an appropriate sentence, a judgment. We read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. As the righteous judge of the universe, God evaluates man's condition perfectly. As a good God, he has the appropriate emotional response. He is grieved, which has the idea of being heartbroken. Again, as the righteous judge, he passes an appropriate sentence. Now, as a side note, theologically, if you're curious about how to square God's unchanging nature with this and other passages that seem to show God changing his mind, I would direct you to Kevin DeYoung's excellent sermon on the immutability of God from the 2018 Together for the Gospel Conference, T4G 2018. Uh, DeYoung does a great job of just unpacking the beauty of the doctrine of the immutability of God and how we square that with some of these, these passages. Anyway, end of the theological side note. But because God is good and just, he cannot allow the guilty to go unpunished. Really, you could summarize all that sin brings, all the effects of sin, as the fall. The fall is the theological concept of what happened to human beings and to the physical universe itself when the first human beings disobeyed God and suffered the consequences of their sin. Human beings had been exalted, and now they are fallen. The universe was very good, but now, even though it still brings God glory, it is fallen too. I almost titled this sermon, The Fall and Its Effects. Man is fallen. So we've seen what sin is and what sin brings. Now let's consider what God brings. Is all hope lost? Is there any room for mercy, any room for grace? What does God bring to the equation of human sin and its effects? Is there any way to avoid the judgment that our sin deserves? What does God bring? God brings grace. We've seen the ugliness of sin and the effects of sin in this passage. Now we will go backwards through the passage, tracing out God's grace. Let's begin with the last verse of the passage, chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor is grace. The best definition I know of grace is God's unmerited favor. Or you could say that grace is undeserved kindness 
from God. This is an important thing to remember when you hear about religions and denominations that teach that grace is something that can be earned. Grace cannot be earned. It can only be given. And while grace is entirely free to the getter, it was extremely costly to the giver. God shows favor or kindness to Noah, even though, as we'll see later, Noah is far from perfect. But we also know from the book of Hebrews that Noah had faith. You see, people who experience the grace of God respond in faith to God and then live righteous, though far from perfect, lives for God. Those who receive God's favor respond in faith. This is a pattern in the Bible, and it is a pattern we see in this genealogy of grace. Noah's father, Lamech, demonstrated faith in naming his son. In verse 29 of chapter 5, we read, And Lamech called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech trusted in, he had faith in, the promise of God to reverse the curse. And Lamech showed that faith by naming his son Noah, which sounds like the word for rest. Two generations earlier, in verses 21 through 24, Enoch showed faith. Of Enoch, it is said twice that he walked with God. This has the idea that Enoch had a close personal relationship with God. I love how Marcus Dodds describes Enoch's walk with God. God walked, Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company, because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in all our thoughts, not because we constantly think of him at all times, but because he is naturally suggested to us by all we think of as when a person or plan or idea has become important to us. No matter what we think of, our thought is always found recurring to this favorite object. So, with the godly man, everything has a connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. When he falls into sin, he cannot rest till he has resumed his place at God's side and walks again with him. This is the general nature of walking with God. It is a persistent endeavor to hold all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will. A readiness to give up what we find does cause any misunderstanding between us and God. A feeling of loneliness if we have not some satisfaction in our efforts at holding fellowship with God. A cold and desolate feeling when we are conscious of doing something that displeases him. And as you instinctively avoid subjects which you know will jar upon the feelings of your friends, as you naturally endeavor to suit yourself to your company, so when consciousness of God's presence begin to have some weight with you, you are found instinctively endeavoring to please Him. Repressing the thoughts you know He disapproves and endeavoring to educate such dispositions as reflect His own nature. It is to be on thoroughly friendly terms with God. Does that describe your relationship with God? Unlike the seventh from Adam through Cain, Lamech, the other Lamech, who brought death and boasted about it, the seventh from Adam through Seth, Enoch, was spared from death because of his faith. Enoch walked with God, so God took him. And Eve shows faith in naming her sons in chapter 4. In verse 1, she named her firstborn Cain, which sounds like the word for gotten. 
thinking that she might, uh, he might be the seed that she had gotten with the help of the Lord. And when Cain falls short of these lofty expectations by killing his brother Abel, she shows faith again in naming her third son. Notice the end of chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Eve, in faith, claiming the promise of God for a seed, names her son Seth, which sounds like the word for he appointed. And around this time, people began to call upon the Lord. Or a better translation might be that they began to proclaim the name of the Lord. People began to profess their faith in God. Even Adam, in chapter 3, verse 20, shows faith in the promise of God to multiply the human race by naming his wife Eve, which sounds like the word for life giver and resembles the word for living. But we also see God's grace in his provision. We see God's grace in what he provides. He provides a better covering for Adam and Eve than fig leaves. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says, God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Notice the implication here that an animal had to die as a substitute in order to provide an adequate covering for sinful people. We see this, so we see in this the foundations of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the greatest sacrifice of all, Jesus Christ. Even God's banishing Adam and Eve from the garden in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 3, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state, was a gracious provision. Now, it's, it's hard for sinful people like us to wrap our minds around this, but apparently an endless life in a sinful state is literally a fate worse than death. We also see God's gracious provision for sinful Cain. In verse 6 of chapter 4, God graciously warns Cain against the danger of sin crouching at his door and encourages him to rule over it rather than being ruled by his sin. It reminds me of the warning of the great Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But Cain, like his parents, ignored God's gracious warning and he sinned. He killed his own brother. But even then, God graciously gives Cain less than he deserves. He graciously marked out Cain, somehow, to prevent him from being killed in retaliation for the murder of Abel. But unlike the other recipients of grace in this text, there is no clear indication that Cain ever had faith or acknowledged or repented of his sin, which is a warning for those who get less than they deserve in this life that they cannot escape God's justice in the next. But, speaking of God's provision... In our uh, next sermon in Genesis, Lord willing, we will see God's gracious provision to Noah by warning him of judgment and, and instructing him to build an ark. But by far and away, the most powerful example of God's grace in this passage is wrapped up in a curse. Look again with me at chapter 3, verse 15. This is arguably the most important verse in the entire book of Genesis. Verse 15 of chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Many theologians refer to this verse as the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. With the curse of the, within the curse of a, on the serpent is a promise of future victory over sin and over Satan. Notice that the serpent will wound the heel, which is a non-mortal wound, whereas the seed will wound the head, a mortal wound. This is why the NIV says, he shall crush your head and you will strike his heel to the serpent. The woman is promised offspring, but the singular tense pronoun he makes it clear that there is one man, one offspring in particular, who will achieve this final victory over Satan. God here promises that one descendant of Eve will one day defeat the serpent for good. All throughout the rest of the Bible, we will trace that seed, that remnant, that people of faith, that line of promise. This is why the genealogies are so important. Here we see the line from Adam to Noah. Soon we will see the line from Noah to Abraham. And then most of the rest of the book of Genesis will will trace Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to the nation of Israel that descends from him. It will then eventually trace itself to one tribe of this nation, Judah, and specifically through the kingly line of David. And that's where the New Testament will then pick up with genealogies of Jesus that trace his line all the way back to Adam, to Abraham, and to King David. Jesus is that promised seed who crushes the serpent's head by dying on the cross as a substitute for sinners. Christ experienced the effects of the fall, including bearing shame and being cursed, to reverse the effects of the fall for those who believe in him. He rose from the dead, proving his power, and he will come back to earth one day to finalize the victory that he has already won. All those who reject Jesus will share the fate of the serpent in hell, and all those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, the seed of the woman, will be delivered from sin and death and shame and share in the victory by treading on serpents themselves. This is how Jesus is the second Adam, the better Adam, the Adam who, instead of bringing death, brings life. I would encourage you this afternoon to read Romans chapter 5 and just meditate on the many ways that Christ is the better Adam. Adam's disobedience caused us to inherit death and a sin nature. Christ's obedience in dying on the cross as a substitute for sinners brings righteousness and life to those who trust in him. I have three applications for us today, each in the form of a question. First, how can you receive grace? The first application asks, how can you receive grace? Perhaps you're here today and you finally become aware of your own sinfulness. You now understand your sinful nature and you remember Many of the times you, like Eve and like Cain, have seen, taken, and sinned against God. How can you receive grace? How can you receive the undeserved favor of God? Through faith alone, in Christ alone. Rather than suppressing your shame and denying your sinfulness, admit your sin, confess it, repent of it, and place your faith and trust in the second Adam, in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners like you. If you have any questions about how to do that, 
Would you please talk to one of us here today? Would you reach out to the church? We would love to show you from the Bible how you can know for certain that your sins have been forgiven and that you have eternal life through Christ. Second application, how can you fight temptation? How can you fight temptation? First, use Scripture. Use Scripture. Study how Christ fought temptation from Satan. He handled Scripture correctly. Second, be prepared. God warned Cain that sin was crouching at his door like an animal waiting to pounce. Satan is like a roaring lion. Sin is waiting to ambush you when you are least prepared. So be prepared. Make a plan. Where and when are you most tempted? How can you avoid temptation where possible? How can you be prepared for temptation when it comes? What fellow Christians can you recruit in your fight against sin? Third, walk with God. Walk with God. Enoch walked with God. Enoch had a relationship with God. When we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. This is how we can have a close personal relationship with God. Cultivate that relationship so that you will instinctively avoid sin and so that when you do sin, you will immediately rush to restore that relationship. Finally, we live in a fallen world where sin and death are currently reigning. So let me ask you one more question. Are you looking for Eden in all the wrong places? Are you looking for Eden, for paradise, in all the wrong places? Are you looking for ultimate satisfaction, for cleansing, for purpose, for belonging, for comfort, apart from God? Are you looking in family, career, pleasure, comfort, ease, security, money? Must you, like the Rolling Stones, confess, I can't get no satisfaction? Today's passage tells us that we can't, why we can't have nice things, why we can't find ultimate satisfaction in this life. So we can stop looking for heaven on earth and find life and peace in a restored relationship with our Creator. You see, there's an urge in all of us to get back to the Garden of Eden, to experience paradise, to enjoy a restored relationship with our Creator. Did you remember what was at the center of the Garden of Eden? The tree of life. The tree that speaks of eternal life and satisfaction in the presence of Almighty God. Will we ever see that tree again? Yes. Remember Kyle's sermon series through Revelation? In Revelation chapter 22, we read of Eden restored in the new heavens and the new earth. And there, in the middle of the city of God, is the tree of life. Have you ever thought about what songs you would like to have sung at your funeral? I have. There is a beautiful old song that uses the imagery of the tree of life to speak of Christ. If you look on YouTube, you can hear beautiful choral arrangements of it. Uh, And during one particularly busy and stressful time in my life, it brought soothing salve to my soul. The song is titled, Jesus Christ, the Apple Tree. The tree of life my soul hath seen, laden with fruit and always green. The trees of nature fruitless be, compared with Christ, the apple tree. Second verse says, His beauty doth all things excel. By faith I know, but ne'er can tell. 
the glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ, the apple tree. The third verse is a good one for our culture today where many people sell their souls on the altar of pleasure or look for happiness in all the wrong places. For happiness I long have sought and pleasure dearly I have bought. I missed of all, but now I see. Tis found in Christ, the apple tree. The fourth verse should soothe the soul of those who are desperately trying to be good enough, who are wearing themselves out seeking to earn God's favor through their own good deeds. It also speaks of a better future rest that only Christ can give. I'm weary with my former toil. Here I will sit and rest a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ, the apple tree. And the final verse reminds us that Christ alone is the source of spiritual life, and he alone can preserve that life within us. This fruit doth make my soul to thrive. It keeps my dying faith alive, which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Let's stand and pray. Lord, today we have been confronted with our sin and have sorrowed over the tragic effects of our sin. But we have also seen your amazing grace, which is greater than all our sin. Thank you for Christ, who through faith offers us the grace of God. Lord, help us flee from sin and help us run to the sin-bearer. For it's in his holy name we pray. Amen.